the scripture this morning is from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses uh, 13 through 18. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn, warn him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times, in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. This is the very word of God. Well, brothers and sisters, we've spent 20 weeks studying the letters of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. And so now as we bring our study to a close, I want to leave you with the reminder that these are uh, not usually considered among Paul's pastoral letters, um, but these are perhaps the most pastoral of all of Paul's letters. He expresses in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians his deep pastoral concern and heart for the believers in the city of Thessalonica. And as part of the word of God, that's how we should read 1st and 2nd Thessalonians with a deep pastoral longing uh, for us as believers as well. These two letters reveal to us um, not only Paul's pastoral heart, but God's pastoral heart for us as his people. And maybe one of the best ways to express that is with the simple words that we see here in verse 16. The Lord be with you all. It's a benediction. There's a lot of benedictions in First and Second Thessalonians, if you've noticed. It expresses the desire but also the assurance that God's people have the presence of God upon them and with them in all that they do. The Apostle Paul, of course, cannot always be with the believers, the churches that he planted, the people he loves so deeply, but he wants them to know God is with them. God's presence with his people it's one of the great privileges that we have as new covenant believers in Jesus. And God's presence with his people encourages God's people to keep on doing what is good and what is right. What is good and what is right. That's what Christians should pursue, confident that God is with them in all of their endeavors. Or as we might summarize these verses that bring our study of 2 Thessalonians to a conclusion, we are to do good, we are to correct what is wrong, we are to aim for peace. Do good, correct wrong, aim for peace. First, the Apostle Paul encourages the believers here in Thessalonica as he brings this letter to a close. Do not grow weary 
in doing good. That's a pastor's heart to his people. Brothers and sisters, do not grow weary in doing good. Now, I know that sounds like a fairly general exhortation, but we should be asking ourselves, what is the good that Paul has in view that he wants to encourage them to keep on doing? Now, the subject of discussion both before and after verse 13 has to do with correcting those who are idle or disorderly in the community. We saw last week that the Christian way of living runs counter to the social conventions of the day. For the Thessalonians, this meant that they were not to be dependent on the support of a patron, but were to, verse 12 says, do their work quietly and earn their own living. We discussed these the meaning of that verse thoroughly last week. But verse 13 is written to ensure that no one overinterprets Paul's instructions. So, for instance, the rule that Paul gives in verse 10, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat, is not to become a cover for Christians to show less compassion toward those who are in need. And this sets up a principle that Christians should always live by. It's easy to see the wrong in our world. It's easy to become enraged by the disorderly conduct, not only in society, but also within our own churches. But even as we must offer a Christian response to such things, even as it is right to do so, as we'll see in just a moment, Paul wants to make sure that we are the kinds of people who guard against the temptation that will inevitably come even as we are outraged by all that is wrong. So we have to guard against overinterpretation or overreaction that would give us an out from doing good. Let us remember the prayer of the prophet Habakkuk who says this, in wrath, remember mercy. So when it comes to responding to wrong, the Christian must also not grow weary in doing good. Now, perhaps you recall another passage in the Bible that is similar to 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 13. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 9, we are also told to not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Uh, As a matter of fact, the passage that we're looking at this morning in 2 Thessalonians 3 has a lot in common with Galatians 6. So you might want to, if you're able to, if you've got a Bible, flip over there to Galatians 6, because there's a lot of similarities in the two passages. They become, in, in essence, a commentary to themselves. When we look at Galatians 6, we can see what it means for Christians to do good. So Galatians 6, verse 10, if you're there, we notice that we are told to do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. The church of Jesus, uh, maybe maybe we can say it this way, ought to be a factory of good deeds. When you look at a local church, you ought to be saying, there's a lot of good that happens in this community. The church of Jesus is a community of people who first are a blessing to each other, but then extending beyond the local community to those outside the church and indeed to the entire world. The world can not only know what the church is against, 
they must see what the church is for. Now, after all, think about this. The the church, the local church in the New Testament, what is a church? What's its purpose? What's it for? The church is, among other things, an outpost of the kingdom of God. We've spent several weeks in between our studies of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians to consider the biblical theology of the kingdom of God. Oh, how important it is for us as Christians to understand who we are. Those who come into contact with the church as an outpost of God's kingdom ought to find the blessing of grace that permeates the kingdom of God. So the good deeds that Christians are to do are manifestations of God's new creation. Just as the Bible begins in Genesis 1, speaking of a world that God creates, and what does God say about his world he creates? Time and time again, he says, it is good. It is good. So Christian good deeds are not as vanilla as we might think they are, right? These are evidences of a new creation. These are specific kinds of good deeds. These are the evidences of the kingdom of God that has broken in or the age to come that has already broken in to this current evil age. So do not grow weary in doing good. The good deeds of Christians and their churches are not to be motivated by belief in karma, but by belief in a kingdom. We are followers of King Jesus. And in Acts chapter 10, verse 38, here's how the Bible describes the life of Jesus. He went about doing good. That's Acts 10, 38. He was a good deed doer. But it's important to understand how and why he did these good deeds. Acts 10.38 tells us, This Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit and power. And then we are told this, And God was with him. And God was with him. That's who you are, Christian. As a follower of King Jesus... As a citizen of God's heavenly kingdom, you and I, as Christians together in the church, are privileged to be anointed with the Holy Spirit and with the power of the Spirit and with the presence of God. So, do not grow weary in doing good. The Lord is with you. The good works of Christians are no small thing, however small they may seem to be. Even a cup of cold water, we are told in Matthew 10, 42, that is given in Christ's name will not fail to receive its reward. And again, in Galatians 6, we are told, verse 8, that those who sow to the Spirit will reap from the Spirit eternal life. The good deeds of Christians, motivated and empowered by the Spirit, are manifestations of eternal life, of God's kingdom, of new creation. That's why we can be sure that God is with us as we carry them out. These good deeds are not irrelevant to the gospel message, but are meant to accompany and adorn the message of good news. They did so for Jesus. 
They should for us as well. The Lord Jesus promised to be with us as we go into the world and make disciples. The Great Commission ends with the certainty from the Lord himself. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So his presence with us as we persist in doing good means that these good deeds are not incidental to Christian discipleship. They are crucial. They are not incidental to the mission of the global church and the mission of making disciples. They are crucial. So brothers and sisters, do not grow weary in doing good. The Lord is with you. But now, we have to deal with the reality. We don't want to have an over-realized eschatology. We learned the kingdom is here. It's truly here. King Jesus reigns by virtue of his death, his resurrection, his exaltation into the heavens. The kingdom is dawned upon this dark world, and yet we wait. The kingdom will not fully come until the second advent of King Jesus. So what does that mean? Until the time when the Lord returns and ushers in the fullness of his kingdom, don't be surprised that we are going to find ourselves frustrated with life outside of Eden. You and I fall into disorder in various ways. We fall into sin. We get weary of doing good. And so we need help. We need instruction. We need correction. We need discipline. We must not only do good, we also have to correct what is wrong. And so verses 6 and 14, we sort of passed over verse 6 because verse 14 brings it up again. So we're going to deal with it here. These two verses are numbered with several other scriptures that discuss the corrective nature of the Christian community or what is often called church discipline. Now, this is a subject that, it, this is, a subject that is um, often abused, misused. But here's the thing. No biblically sound church can ignore it. You don't have an option to say we are a biblically faithful church and ignore the corrective instruction of the church. And if we understand that the church, what the church is and the privilege it is to be a part of this new community, then we should treasure and value the discipline of that community. It should matter to us. It should be a beautiful thing. We of all people... Christians should know we can't trust ourselves. We can't trust our own heart. We can't be left up to ourselves to figure things out. We, we need each other. We need a community. We need the discipline that comes from being together. So how do we properly correct the wrong? The Bible gives us instructions. Just staying in this one text, here's what we notice. First, the Bible says, take note of the offender, the one who walks in disorderliness. The, the offense in view is 
Um, in the ESV, it's called idleness. We discussed this at length last week. It, it has to do with work, culturally understood, but it, it's not laziness. We said last week, just in summary, it was living by a political and economic culture that has no place in the kingdom of God. And while we don't have the exact kind of culture in the place that we live, that Paul had in the first century, we have similar issues. Again, we talked about this last week, related to the temptation to give honor to those that we think will benefit us the most. We especially see this in the political climate that we find ourselves in today. And it puts Christians in a place where they are often guilty of complicity with the idols of the age, and it weakens our witness to the kingdom of God. Now, other passages give us other specific sins for which the corrective discipline of the church is necessary, but it's incorrect to think that the Bible gives us a definitive list. Because church discipline is about helping us grow into Christ, every sin, since all sin threatens to hinder that growth, is subject to formal discipline. But not every sin will end up there or demands that kind of response that Paul outlines in these verses. Because if every act of disobedience called for some disfellowship, then to be blunt, there would be no fellowship in the church. So I think it is helpful to summarize the biblical teaching on formal church discipline by saying that it is to be employed wherever there is outward, serious, and unrepentant sin in its membership. Outward, serious, an unrepentant sin. Uh, outward means sin that can be seen and heard, not just something that's suspected in the heart. Serious means that there should be plenty of space for people to stumble and fall without fearing disfellowship from brothers and sisters. We are called in 1 Peter 4, 8 to cover a multitude of sins with love. We remember that pursuing Christ is like learning to walk for the first time. You ever watched a little child learning to walk? How many times does a little kid fall before they learn to walk? It's amazing any of us are still alive. So that's why we also say that a sin must be not only outward and serious, but also unrepentant in order to enact formal church discipline. A, a person must be confronted with their sin, but refuse to let the sin go. It, it cannot be a sin with which a believer is seriously wrestling, but one that they are simply refusing to fight. And unrepentance is often best identified when clear steps of repentance are outlined and a person just simply says, no, I won't do it. So outward, serious, and unrepentant. We have to note the one who's in that condition. But now, second, having, having noted the person who is engaged in this type of behavior, Paul says right here, look at it. He says, have nothing to do with him. <laughs> Verse 6, Paul says, keep away from such a person. Now, again, that sounds maybe straightforward, but it raises a lot of questions in my mind. Does this mean that we should literally run away from a person every time we see them. Someone's in serious, unrepentant, outward sin, and you see them, you're like, whoa, kryptonite, you know? It's like, dash, run away, hide. 
What if the person is related to you in other ways? Maybe a family member or a coworker. What do you do if a person like this calls you or texts you? Do you hang up the phone, ignore the text message? Should you defriend them on your social media platforms? You know, that's like the ultimate shame nowadays. Paul seems to know that the words he says in verses 6 and 14 can be mishandled even in his day. So he says this in verse 15. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. This addendum clearly shows that the disfellowship cannot be properly called shunning. We are not to regard those placed under this kind of formal discipline as an enemy. That is someone that you have to literally stay away from at all times. The verb that Paul uses means to mingle or to associate with. So there's some kind of change in how we interact with a person that's under formal church discipline. Things are supposed to change. It can't all remain the same, but but what's the change? Well, when Jesus describes the process in Matthew 18, verse 17, he says that it's at this point that the person is to be treated as you would treat someone who's an unbeliever, someone outside of the family of God. Now, again, this brings up questions. How do you treat an unbeliever? Christians, of course, are to be kind to all, to be generous. So it, again, may not sound like much of anything is different in the relationship. But here's the point. Only, that can only be true if we've not taken seriously what a church is, an outpost of the kingdom of God. If there's not a understanding of a church as a community of committed followers of Jesus, committed not only to Christ, but also to each other, then there's really no way to understand what kind of change would take place. But if in fact you have identifiable local churches, community of believers in covenant together with each other, then here's what is to happen at this point. The church takes action to remove the person from membership and to prohibit the person from receiving the Lord's Supper or any other privileges that come with church membership. Now, this is really hard. This is difficult. It's been now over a year since we've been able to receive the sacrament together every Sunday. Can you believe? I mean, this is still blows my mind because we are living in disordered times right now. The whole church isn't even gathered together. It's why we don't do the Lord's Supper like we normally would every Sunday. So I know that some of this loses its edge because it's like we've not even had this regular occurrence for a year. But when a church disfellowships someone from their membership, they are removing them from membership and no longer affirming that this person is a Christian. That's pretty serious, don't you think? Now, no church wants to take that kind of action. At least I hope not. I hope nobody gets excited about it. Like, who can we go around and dislike? That's not, no church wants to do that. Just like no parent is eager to have to bring corrective discipline to their child. And our world, in fact, normally would scoff at even such kind of discussion. 
but the world recently got to see this. It's headline news. After the events of the last couple weeks, a member of the Crab Apple First Baptist Church in Milton, Georgia, you heard, ruthlessly murdered eight people on March 16th. He was a member of a church. Now, just imagine that. Imagine if that was a member of our church. What would we do? And by the way, I, I, don't, I don't know any of these individuals. I think it's important for the church, though, in a case like that, to make sure they are clear and definitive about what they believe, about condemning hostility. Was it racially based? I know all these are arguments in the world today. I will tell you this. If indeed that's the case, that it was racially motivated, as it sure looks like it could have been, at least the church needs to be clear and definitive. As an outpost of the kingdom of God, the church of Jesus Christ has no national allegiances. We are the people of God. All the divisions of ethnicity, nationality should be irrelevant here. No one from any different culture than the culture in which the church locally resides should ever feel uncomfortable or out of place in that local church. So again, with all of that said, and I have, because I don't know these people, but what I did find it interesting was that this particular church immediately, immediately announced that it was excommunicating their member who committed the murders. Here's what they said on their website. I, I looked this morning, it's still up. You can go to their website. They said that his actions were, quote, antithetical to everything that we believe and teach as a church. They wrote that have, they have started the process of church discipline to remove him from membership since we can no longer affirm that he is truly a regenerate believer in Jesus Christ, end quote. Now, I, I for one, appreciate that church's clear biblical statement in response to the horrific sin of one of its members. There, there are plenty looking to place blame on the church or on their Christian beliefs and in spite of all that, the church was not afraid to take the right action. But at the same time, a church's act to disfellowship from one of its members could also be criticized by the world where the sin is something that unbelievers don't think is that big a deal. So it's important to keep in mind that the purpose of the excommunication, according to verse 14, is that he may be ashamed. And that verb does not mean to shame. <laughs> I know that sounds strange. The purpose is that he might be ashamed, but the verb doesn't mean to shame them. It is a redemptive shame that is in view here. It's an action taken to show that a, that a behavior is not tolerated. And the reason you take that action is, to, is in hopes that the person will turn away from it. Restoration is always the hope of church discipline. Again, to quote from the statement by the Crabapple Church, they wrote this, quote, we are thankful for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that offers forgiveness and new life to all who truly repent of their sins and place their faith in Christ alone for salvation, end quote. 
So again, the, the person in sin is not to be treated like an enemy. That is, stay away from them at all times. But they are to be warned as you would warn a brother. I thought they weren't a Christian. Well, that's for God to decide. But you warn them like you would warn a sibling. Disfellowshipping with a sinner, the church is not to treat him as a brother, extending fellowship to him, but they are to admonish him as they would a brother. So love continues to be the attitude behind the action of excommunication. And the purpose of the disfellowship is the hope that they will come to their senses, repent, and be restored to Christ and to his community. Now, again, I want you to notice Galatians 6, similarity, commentary on this passage, perhaps. Here's what Paul writes in Galatians 6, 1. Brothers, brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Do you see the corrective action? The church must not only be an outpost of doing good as a follower of Jesus, but always being clear about correcting what is wrong and doing so in a spirit of gentleness, never in hostility, never in retaliation. That is how the Lord has dealt with us. And we can be sure that the Lord is with us, not only as we do good, but also as we correct what is wrong. Now, finally, in light of all of this, the closing words of 2 Thessalonians take on a new meaning. The Lord is with us as we do good, as we correct wrong, and the Lord is with us ultimately as we aim for peace. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. You may recall, maybe you don't, that at the end of 1 Thessalonians, Paul also concluded by referring to God as the God of peace. And when he did that in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, it came right after he urged the church to hold on to good and reject the evil. So the similarities are pretty clear. The God of peace, Paul said, will sanctify us, will make us holy completely. And the way that the God of peace does this is through the process of sanctification. It's, it's through life together in a community, as a church, with correction, with discipline. It's through the conflict that comes as we wrestle with our beliefs and how those beliefs are to be carried out in our actions and lifestyles and in our behavior. The church ought to be that kind of a culture, that kind of a family where we're constantly discussing together the truths of God's word and what that means for how we should live our lives. And again, we notice the similarity with Galatians 6. At the very end of the chapter, Paul pronounces peace and mercy upon the Israel of God and upon all who walk by this rule, the rule of new creation. Now, there's a lot in those few words. The Israel of God is the new and true Israel no longer identified by ethnic distinctions or by the distinguishing rite of circumcision, but, Paul says, by those who walk by a new rule. What is this new rule? <laughs> what is this new standard by which we as Christians live our lives? And Paul says it's the rule of new creation. The rule of new creation. In other words, do you know who you are, church? 
Christians, do you understand the great privilege that is ours? The church of Jesus Christ is in the privileged position. We are the new, reconstituted, chosen people of God. What does that mean? It means we don't live by the old rules of Israel. We live by the new rule of new creation. (laughs) What does that mean? Well, in short, we'll talk more about this next week on Easter Sunday. But we should at least end by summarizing the way Paul does. It means we have every reason to aim for peace. Every reason to aim for peace. The Lord of peace is with us. He's with us. His gospel is the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. The sovereign king of the universe is a king of peace. And what an amazing privilege it is to be counted among his people. In this kingdom, there is life. In this kingdom of new creation, there is joy. Like the joy of God himself speaking the words in Genesis chapter 1 when he makes everything and says, it is good. And in this kingdom, there is peace. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we can sense in the letters of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians your own pastoral heart, a shepherd's heart for your people. You've not left us alone in this world. <laughs> no way. It is Jesus himself who assured his disciples that I will not leave you. I will send you another comforter, the Holy Spirit, who will be with you forever. God himself, in the person of his Holy Spirit, is with us. We are the Israel of God by grace How did we get here? It was not by our own efforts. It was not by our merits. It was by the pure, free grace of God through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And now, as his people by grace, the Lord of peace is with us. We live in a new creation. As members of your church, We walk by a new rule, the rule of new creation. May every believer in Jesus this morning have the horizons broadened to see the world that we inhabit now in a new light. What a privilege it is to be your people. So grant us, we ask, in the days that come that lie ahead of us and the challenges that undoubtedly await us, the assurance that the Lord is with us all. We pray in Jesus' name.